Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. to the Mysteries Abound podcast. This is your host, Paul, and this is episode 135. This podcast is entitled, The Unusual Origins of Pink Lemonade. From the WashingtonPost.com, a story by Sarah Kaplan. Legends say China began in a great flood. Scientists just found evidence that the flood was real. It said the flood looked like endless boiling water surging across the landscape. A wave as tall as a 30-storey building would have crashed over the banks of the Yellow River, demolishing everything in its path. It soaked the streets of ancient China's nascent cities and washed away the surrounding farmland. The flood is pouring forth destruction, boundless and overwhelming. It overtops hills and mountains, goes a quote attributed to the legendary Emperor Yeo. Rising and ever rising, it threatens the very heavens. If civilization was to survive, the people needed a hero who could tame the floodwaters and restore the land. That man was Yu, founder of China's first dynasty, the Xiao. Over the course of decades, Yu organised a dredging campaign, dug channels that would carry the water back to its source, and pioneered a tradition of great Chinese public works. He brings order out of the chaos and defines the land, separating what would become the centre of Chinese civilization, says David Cohen an anthropologist and early Chinese history expert at National Taiwan University. He is essentially establishing the political order and the ideologies of rulership. It is a powerful foundation myth, but many believed that was all it was. Some 4,000 years after the flood was supposed to have happened, historians have found no archaeological evidence of its effect or first-hand accounts of its destruction. There are no historical artefacts from Yu or the Shia dynasty he founded. All researchers had to go on were stories written long after the fact, dramatised and politicised to justify the ends of those who wrote them. Until Wu Qinglong, 
a geologist at Nanjing Normal University, found signs of the flood in the sediments beneath his feet. In a new paper published on Thursday in the journal Science, Wu and his colleagues describe geological evidence for a catastrophic flood on the Yellow River in about 1900 BC, right around the time the Great Flood was said to have taken place. This expands our understanding, says Andrew Sudgan, Deputy Editor of Science, not only of our civilization's origins, but also the environment in which ancestral societies emerged. In 2007, while conducting research on rock around the Yellow River, Wu noticed deposits that looked suspiciously like outburst flood sediments. Bits of green schist, a type of rock found in the mountains far upstream, and mudstone were uncovered at sites all along the river. The sediments appeared in layers, much thicker than was normal for the Yellow River, indicating that they had been deposited swiftly by a massive flood. Realising what he might be looking at, Wu quickly assembled a team of archaeologists, geologists and historians. If he was going to investigate this ancient disaster, he'd need the expertise of all three. At a nearby archaeological site, Lagia, home of the world's first known noodles, they discovered flood deposits mixed with broken pottery inside collapsed cave dwellings. And upstream in the mountains of Jishi Gorge, they uncovered evidence that a massive mountain lake once formed there, presumably because the river had been blocked by debris. Eventually, a picture of the past came into focus. Thousands of years ago, a huge earthquake shook the region, toppling the homes at Legia. Radiocarbon dates of children's bones from the site time the disaster to 1922 BC give or take 28 years. Upstream in the mountains to the west, an avalanche tumbled into the mouth of the Jishi Gorge, creating an artificial dam that prevented the river from flowing through. Backed up water began to fill the gorge, rising higher with each passing month. The people living downstream would have seen the Yellow River slow to a trickle, then stop. It's not clear whether they would have been aware of the disaster that was looming. About nine months later, the lake spilled over the top of the dam. The blockage came crashing down and water spilled into the river valley below. Using a standard engineering equation to determine flood discharge, the scientists calculated that the waters would have surged forward at a rate of 300,000 to 500,000 cubic metres per second. The damage would have extended as far as 2,000 kilometres downstream. To put that into perspective, says Daryl Granger, a geologist at Purdue University, that's roughly equivalent to the largest flood ever measured on the Amazon River, the world's largest river. It's among the largest known floods to have happened on Earth during the past 10,000 years. And it's more than 500 times larger than a flood we might expect on the Yellow River from a massive rainfall event. So this cataclysmic flood would have been a truly devastating effect for anyone living on the Yellow River downstream, Granger said. It's difficult to carbon date flood deposits. By their nature, floodwaters mix up materials and jumble the record. But analysis of organic material laid down with the flood sediments timed the flood to about 2000 BC, 
close to the dates indicated by the bones from Lagia and the historical record. Flood sediments are found inside cracks from the earthquake, indicating that the two events occurred within a year of each other. The timing of the flood also coincides with a major avulsion, a change in the course of the river. That could account for the decades of sustained flooding described in the U myth. Shortly after the era of the flood, sites associated with a culture called Elutu began to emerge. To archaeologists, they signal the start of China's Bronze Age. The communities are ten times as big as the ones that existed previously and their technology is much more sophisticated. So far, no evidence has been found to definitely link the Elutu to the mythical Xiao. But if the Xiao dynasty really did exist, it's thought that the Elutu sites would have been the lands they ruled. The outburst flood provides us with a tantalising hint, says Cohen, the anthropologist. He hesitated to make a connection between the flood, the Xiao and the Elutu sites, but he calls the correlation of the dates for all three quite interesting. The Elutu communities are also farther downstream from the dam than the areas the researchers examined. It's not clear whether the floodwaters would have made it so far. Cohen said the next phase of research that needs to be done is a survey of the areas around Elutu for evidence of the flood and signs that it could have been the trigger that gave rise to this more advanced society. In an accompanying analysis for science, University of Washington geomorphologist David Montgomery wrote that Wu and his colleagues offer compelling evidence for the historicity of the Great Flood myth. He also noted that anthropologists have found that flood myths from cultures around the world often reflect the environments in which they're set. Societies living in tectonic subduction zones tell stories of giants and armies. Those living in mountains and polar areas evoke the failure of glacial dams. It increasingly seems that fundamental elements of the global tapestry of great flood stories mirror the geography of tsunamis, glacial outburst floods and catastrophic lowland flooding, Montgomery wrote. Now that we know China's great flood seems to be real, how many other ancient stories of intriguing disasters might just have more than a grain of truth to them? For nearly nine decades, science's favourite explanation for the origin of life has been the primordial soup. This is the idea that life began from a series of chemical reactions in a warm pond on the Earth's surface, triggered by an external energy source such as lightning strikes or ultraviolet light. But recent research adds weight to an alternative idea, that life arose deep in the ocean within warm, rocky structures called hydrothermal vents. From the 3tags.org website, we've been wrong about the origins of life for 90 years. A study published last month in Nature Microbiology suggests the last common ancestor of all living cells fed on hydrogen gas in a hot iron-rich environment 
much like that within the vents. Advocates of the conventional theory have been sceptical that these findings should change our view on the origins of life. But the hydrothermal vent hypothesis, which is often described as exotic and controversial, explains how living cells evolved the ability to obtain energy in a way that just wouldn't have been possible in a primordial soup. Under the conventional theory, life supposedly began when lightning or UV rays caused simple molecules to join together into more complex compounds. This culminated in the creation of information-storing molecules similar to our own DNA, housed within the protective bubbles of primitive cells. Laboratory experiments confirm the trace amounts of molecular building blocks that make up proteins and information-storing molecules can indeed be created under these conditions. For many, the primordial soup has become the most plausible environment for the origin of first living cells. But life isn't just about replicating information stored within DNA. All living things have to reproduce in order to survive. But replicating the DNA, assembling new proteins and building cells from scratch require tremendous amounts of energy. At the core of life are mechanisms of obtaining energy from the environment, storing and continuously challenging it into cells' key metabolic reactions. Where this energy comes from and how it gets there can tell us a whole lot about the universal principles governing life's evolution and origin. Recent studies increasingly suggest that the primordial soup was not the right kind of environment to drive the energetics of the first living cells. It's classic textbook knowledge that all life on Earth is powered by energy supplied by the sun and captured by plants, or extracted from simple compounds such as hydrogen or methane. Far less known is the fact that all life harnesses this energy in the same and quite peculiar way. This process works a bit like a hydroelectric dam. Instead of directly powering their core metabolic reactions, cells use energy from food to pump protons into a reservoir behind a biological membrane. This creates what is known as a concentration gradient with a higher concentration of protons on one side of the membrane than the other. The protons then flow back through molecular turbines embedded within the membrane, like water flowing through a dam. This generates high-energy compounds that are then used to power the rest of the cell's activities. Life could have evolved to exploit any of the countless energy sources available on Earth, from heat or electrical discharges to naturally radioactive ores. Instead, all life forms are driven by proton concentration differences across cell membranes. This suggests that the earliest living cells harvested energy in a similar way, and that life itself arose in an environment in which proton gradients were the most accessible power source. Recent studies based on sets of genes that were likely to have been present within the first living cells trace the origin of life back to deep-sea hydrothermal vents. These are porous geological structures produced by chemical reactions between solid rock and water. Alkaline fluids from the Earth's crust flow up the vents towards the more acidic ocean water, creating natural proton concentration differences remarkably similar to those powering all living cells. 
The studies suggest that in the earlier stages of life's evolution, chemical reactions in primitive cells were likely driven by these non-biological proton gradients. Cells then later learned how to produce their own gradients and escape the vents to colonise the rest of the ocean and eventually the planet. While proponents of the primordial soup theory argue that electrostatic discharges or the sun's ultraviolet radiation drove life's first chemical reactions, modern life is not powered by any of these volatile energy sources. Instead, at the core of life's energy production are ion gradients across biological membranes. Nothing even remotely similar could have emerged within the warm ponds of primeval broth on Earth's surface. In these environments, chemical compounds and charged particles tend to get evenly diluted instead of forming gradients or non-equilibrium states that are so central to life. Deep-sea hydrothermal vents represent the only known environment that could have created complex organic molecules with the same kind of energy-harnessing machinery as modern cells. Seeking the origins of life in the primordial soup made sense when little was known about the universal principles of life's energetics. But as our knowledge expands, it is time to embrace alternative hypotheses that recognise the importance of the energy flux driving the first biochemical reactions. These theories seamlessly bridge the gap between the energetics of living cells and non-living molecules. If you think the recent weather has been strange lately, listen to this tale of a year without a summer. In 1815, a volcanic eruption caused the following year's weather patterns to be drastically different. People across the world experienced unusual weather and increased hardships, but they did not associate the volcano with the conditions at the time. This strange phenomenon deeply affected the eastern US and the Appalachian Mountains but hit the whole world, causing odd rain events and weather that could not be explained and altering the course of human history. From the dustyoldthing.com website, 1816, the year without a summer that changed the world. The eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia, then known as the Dutch East Indies in April of 1815, was the result of a highly pressurised volcanic environment. The initial stages of eruption were reported to have sounded like an army attack with guns and cannons. As flames shot from the top, hot pumice and volcanic rock were forced into the air. The geological event caused tonnes of ash and sulphur dioxide into the air over the course of five days, enough to cover a hundred-mile radius with a foot of ash. 
This event and the resulting cloud, some scientists proffer, is the cause of the weather extremes and global cooling the following year. Many experts do believe that this is the only reasonable explanation for the year without a summer, though there is not total agreement on the matter. This volcano is still active today, though volcanic activity is closely monitored to ensure minimal losses if the pressure does build up again. Folks began to notice that the usual signs of spring weren't there in 1816. First-hand accounts tell us that the weather was so cold that birds dropped from the sky mid-flight, presumably from exposure or starvation. The ground was frost-covered in May in some regions, but that was the least of the problems to come since snows in June and July were a huge problem for Appalachian and New England farmers. The spring and summer months were dotted with slightly warmer periods that did not last giving false hope to some. Crops could not grow and yields were reduced by 90% in some places. The prices of produce and wheat soared dramatically as goods became increasingly hard to come by. The poverty year, as it is also known, draws from the fact that increased prices and decreased crops meant that the poor were even poorer this year. Today it is also referred to as the Little Ice Age. In some parts of Europe, decreased crops and poor food production dragged on until 1817 and 1818, showing the far-reaching effects of the volcanic spread. Around the world, the weather patterns of many areas were flipped backwards. In China, the monsoon season hit so hard that flooding was unavoidable. In India, the monsoons did not arrive as expected, causing drought and water shortages at first, then flooding during the dry season. This weather changes in India caused the already present cholera bacteria to mutate into a new strain as an adaptation to the changing water supply. Humans in those areas had no immunity to this new strain and the disease became rampant. Worldwide increases in cholera cases occurred after this devastating event and cholera is still pandemic in many parts of Africa and Asia today due to the high degree of adaptability of the bacteria. Some important changes came about because of this year without a summer. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was written in the gloomy months of the frigid summer of 1816. Hardship in the Yunnan province of China caused family farms to seek more durable and profitable crops and opium was a prime choice that continued for decades and gave rise to the golden triangle of opium production. Farmers in New England drifted west hoping that the summers would be warmer out there, perhaps changing the direction of the nation. Unlike the rest of the world, the Arctic actually warmed up during this time melting ice barriers and allowing for historic expeditions and the search for the Northwest Passage, the majority of which, however, ended in tragedy. This one volcanic eruption impacted the world for centuries due to how the weather changed crops and bacteria. The incident helped invent the modern science fiction novel and a key drug became more common based on the events of that infamous year. It's amazing we don't learn the crazy story of the year without a summer in school.
You're out to lunch with someone you've known for a few years. Together you've held parties, celebrated birthdays, visited parks and bonded over your mutual love of ice cream. You've even been on holiday together. In all, they've spent quite a lot of money on you, roughly £63,244. The thing is, you can't remember any of it. From the most dramatic moment in life, the day of your birth, to first steps, first foods, first words, right up to nursery school, most of us can't remember anything of our first few years. Even after our precious first memory, the recollections tend to be few and far between until well into our childhood. How come? From the bbc.com website, a story by Zaria Gorvet. The mystery of why you can't remember being a baby. This gaping hole in the record of our lives has been frustrating parents and baffling psychologists, neuroscientists and linguists for decades. It was a minor obsession of the father of psychotherapy, Sigmund Freud, who coined the phrase infant amnesia over a hundred years ago. Probing that mental blank throws up some intriguing questions. Did your earliest memories actually happen, or are they simply made up? Can we remember events without the words to describe them? And might it one day be possible to claim your missing memories back? Part of the puzzle comes from the fact that babies are, in other ways, sponges for new information, forming 700 new neural connections every second and wielding language learning skills to make the most accomplished polyglot green with envy. The latest research suggests that they begin training their minds before they've even left the womb. But even as adults, information is lost over time if there's no attempt to retain it. So one explanation is that infant amnesia is simply a result of the natural process of forgetting the things we experience throughout our lives. An answer comes from the work of the 19th century German psychologist Hermann Ebbinghaus, who conducted a series of pioneering experiments on himself to test the limits of human memory. To ensure his mind was a completely blank slate to begin with, he invented the nonsense syllable, a made-up word of random letters such as CAG or SLANS, and set to work memorising thousands of them. His forgetting curve charts the disconcertingly rapid decline of our ability to recall the things we've learnt. Left alone, our brains throw away half of all the new material within an hour. By day 30, we've retained about 2-3%. to Crucially, Ebbinghaus discovered that the way we forget is entirely predictable. To find out if babies' memories are any different, all we have to do is compare the charts. When they did the maths in the 1980s, the scientists discovered we recall far fewer memories between birth and the age of six or seven than you would expect. Clearly, something very different was going on. Intriguingly, the veil lifts earlier for some people than others. Some people can remember events from when they were just two years old, while others may have no recollection of anything that has happened to them for seven or eight years. On average, patchy footage appears from about three and a half, 
More intriguingly still, discrepancies in forgetting have also been observed from country to country where the average onset of our earliest memories can vary by up to two years. Could this offer some clues to explain the blank beforehand? To find out, psychologist Kui Wang at Cornell University collect hundreds of memories from Chinese and American college students. As the national stereotypes would predict, American stories were longer, more elaborate and conspicuously egocentric. Chinese stories, on the other hand, were briefer and more factual. On average, they began six months earlier. It's a pattern backed up by numerous other studies. Those with more detailed, self-focused memories seem to find them easier to recall. It's thought that a dash of self-interest can be helpful since developing your own perspective infuses events with meaning. It's the difference between thinking. There were tigers at the zoo and I saw tigers at the zoo and even though they were scary I had a lot of fun, says Robin Fivish, a psychologist at Emory University. When Wang performed the same experiment again, this time asking the children's mothers, she found the same pattern. In other words, those with hazy memories, blame your parents. Wang's first memory is of hiking in the mountains around her family home in Chongqing, China, with her mother and her sister. She was about six. The thing is, until she moved to the US, she'd never been asked. In Eastern cultures, childhood memories aren't important. People are like, why do you care, she says. If society is telling you those memories are important to you, you'll hold on to them, says Wang. The record for the earliest memories goes to the Maori New Zealanders, whose culture includes a strong emphasis on the past. Many can recall events which happened when they were just two and a half. Our culture may also determine the way we talk about our memories, with some psychologists arguing that they only come once we have mastered the power of speech. Language helps provide a structure or organisation for our memories that is a narrative. By creating a story, the experience becomes more organised and therefore easier to remember over time, says Fivish. Some psychologists are sceptical that this plays much of a role, however. There's no difference between the age at which children who are born deaf and grow up without sign language report their earliest memories, for instance. This leads us to the theory that we can't remember our first years simply because our brains hadn't developed the necessary equipment. The explanation emerges from the most famous man in the history of neuroscience, known simply as patient H.M., after a botched operation to cure his epilepsy damaged his hippocampus. H.M. was unable to recall any new events. It's the centre of our ability to learn and remember. If it weren't for the hippocampus, I wouldn't be able to remember this conversation now, says Geoffrey Fagan, who studies memory and learning at St John's University. Intriguingly, however, he was still able to learn other kinds of information, just like babies. When scientists asked him to draw a copy of a five-pointed star by looking at it in a mirror, harder than it sounds, he improved with each round of practice, despite the fact the experience itself felt completely new to him. Perhaps when we're very young, the hippocampus simply isn't developed enough to build a rich memory of an event. 
baby rats, monkeys and humans all continue to add new neurons to the hippocampus for the first few years of life. And we all are all unable to form lasting memories as infants. And it seems that the moment we stop creating new neurons, we're suddenly able to form long-term memories. For young babies and infants, the hippocampus is very undeveloped, says Fagan. But is the underformed hippocampus losing our long-term memories? Or are they never formed in the first place? Since childhood events can continue to affect our behaviour long after we've forgotten them, some psychologists think they must be lingering somewhere. The memories are probably stored someplace that's inaccessible now, but it's very difficult to demonstrate them empirically, says Fagan. We should be very wary about what we do recall from that time, though. Our childhood is probably full of false memories for events that never occurred. Elizabeth Loftus, the psychologist at the University of California, Irvine, has devoted her career to the phenomenon. People can pick up suggestions and begin to visualise them. They become like memories, she says. Loftus knows firsthand how easily this happens. Her mother drowned in a swimming pool when she was just 16. Years later, a relative convinced her that she had discovered her floating body. It all came flooding back, until a week later, the same relative called and explained she'd got it wrong. It was someone else. Of course, no one likes to be told their memories aren't real. To convince the sceptics, Loftus knew she'd need unequivocal proof. Back in the 1980s, she recruited volunteers for a study and planted the memories herself. Loftus spun an elaborate lie about a traumatic trip to a shopping mall when they got lost, before being rescued by a kindly elderly woman and reunited. To make the event more plausible, she even roped in their families. We basically said to our research participants, we've talked to your mother, your mother has told us some things that happened to you. Nearly a third of her victims fell for it, with some apparently recalling the event in vivid detail. In fact, we're often more confident in our imaginary memories than we are in those which actually happened. Even if your memories are based on real events, they have probably been moulded and refashioned in hindsight. Memories planted by conversations rather than first-person memories of the actual events. That time you thought it would be funny to turn your sister into a zebra with permanent marker. You saw it in a family video. The incredible third birthday cake your mother made you. Your older brother told you about it. Perhaps the biggest mystery is not why we can't remember our childhood, but whether we can believe any of our memories at all. smithsonianmag.com website The unusual origins of pink lemonade It's a pretty scary story It does involve clowns after all And this is written by Laura Kinnery It's sweet, colourful and synonymous with summertime 
Pink lemonade has been a part of American culture longer than backyard barbecues and above-ground swimming pools. But have you ever stopped to consider why the go-to lemonade has that pastel hue? While pink lemons do exist, they were first discovered on a typical Eureka lemon tree in 1930. Their light pink flesh juices clear. Instead, it turns out the likely origins of this popular beverage is a tale as unexpected as its own rosy and unnatural shade. Although the history of traditional lemonade, a blend of lemon juice, water and sugar, in America dates back to the early arrival of European immigrants, with recipes appearing in the States as early as the 17th century, the genesis of pink lemonade is a bit more recent. By the 19th century, a growing ice trade made chilled drinks increasingly popular, and as more people experienced the thrill of enjoying a sweet, cold beverage on a sweltering day, lemonade hit its stride. Around the same time, travelling circuses were taking off. People were coming from miles away to experience death-defying high-wire acts and see such oddities as human mermaids, contortionists and fire-breathers. It only makes sense that they'd want their drinks to be fantastical as well. The earliest known mention of pink lemonade comes from an 1879 article in West Virginia's Wheeling Register, explicitly linking the two. According to Josh Chetwind, author of the New York Times best-selling How the Hot Dog Got Its Bun, Accidental Discoveries and Unexpected Inspirations That Shape What We Eat and Drink, There are multiple stories about the origins of pink lemonade, but there are two that he finds most plausible, largely because of their circus roots. The first, he says, is a 1912 New York Times obituary for Henry E. Allett, a Chicago native who ran away to the circus in his early teens. Allett is believed to have invented pink lemonade after accidentally dropping red-coloured cinnamon candies in a vat of traditional lemonade. Adhering to the old circus adage, the show must go on, Allett simply sold the pink-hued beverage as is. The second, more stomach-churning theory comes from Harvey W. Root's 1921 book, The Ways of the Circus, being the memories and adventures of George Conklin, tamer of lions. Root's main subject, George, claims his brother Pete Conklin came up with pink lemonade in 1857 while selling lemonade at the circus. Conklin ran out of water and, thinking on the fly, grabbed a tub of dirty water in which a performer had just finished wringing out her pink-coloured tights. In true circus form, Conklin didn't miss a beat. He marketed the drink as his new strawberry lemonade and a star was born. From then on, sales doubled Wright's route, and no first-class circus was without pink lemonade. In the end, no one really knows which story is accurate, says Chetwind, but of course the timing of Conklin's tale gives that yarn the advantage. Chetwind points out that there's a legendary quality to both stories, a fact that's unsurprising, he says, given that it seems pretty clear pink lemonade was either created or at least popularised by the circus. Despite the drink's unsavoury beginnings, customers caught on quickly that lemonade could be both pink and nutritious. As early as 1892, E.E. E. Kellogg's Science in the Kitchen features a pink lemonade recipe 
calling for half a cup of fresh or canned strawberry, red raspberry, currant or cranberry juice, in lieu of cinnamon candies or dirty wash water. And these days there are pink lemonades made with watermelon, strawberry, raspberry and grenadine, a sweet tart syrup traditionally derived from pomegranates. Still the bulk of global brand pink lemonade is pink in colour alone, a tint derived from concentrated grape juice or extract. If the taste of pink and traditional lemonade are exactly the same, why does the former remain so popular? When my inquiries to Minute Maid and Newman's own went unanswered, I reached out to Sally Augustine, a practising environmental psychologist who focuses on the ways elements like shapes and colours influence our lives. The colour of pink lemonade is relaxing, she says. It's a pink that's not very saturated, but relatively bright. In my experience, traditional lemonade has no real colour. It seems flavour and nutrients have nothing to do with pink lemonade's consumer longevity. In the end, people just want to feel they can unwind. And with a colour that's so calming and youthful, pink lemonade is the perfect drink with which to do so. So today, Conklin's and Allet's legacies live on. As for the men themselves, in reference to Allet, the New York Post put it best. The man who invented pink lemonade has crossed the river, where it may be hoped there are no pure food advocates to harass him for the sins committed in his name. From the ancientorigins.net The ancient legend of the monstrous rat king. And this is written by Wu Mingren. A rat king is the term used to describe an agglomeration of rats whose tails have entangled together. As a result of this entanglement, a large single entity is formed which is usually further bound by other substances, such as blood, faeces or other filth. The concept of this monstrous creature is said to have existed for centuries, and there are a number of specimens in natural history museums that seem to attest to their existence. According to one source, the name Rat King may have its origins in an old belief which states that the elderly rats known for their wisdom would sit on the entangled tails of his fellow rats. This rat was believed to have been treated as royalty by the other rats, hence giving rise to the term Rat King. Interestingly, this phenomenon is not limited to rats alone but mice and squirrels have also been found occasionally to be caught in large knots. It is unknown, though, if the old folklore applies to these creatures as well. This phenomenon is most often associated with Germany, as the majority of stories about the Rat King originate from this country. 
The existence of rat kings has also been reported in other countries, such as France, Poland, the Netherlands, Estonia and Indonesia. Apart from this last country, it has been stated that two factors coincide in the areas where rat kings have been found. The first being cold winters, while the second being the presence of the black rat, Ratus ratus. Incidentally, it may be worth mentioning that the rat king found on Java, Indonesia, is by far the only one not consisting of black rats. Instead, this rat king is made up of sawa rats. Ratus ratus brevicordatus. Fear and superstitions often accompany rat kings. In particular, rat kings are associated with the plague. This is a somewhat rational connection, as rat kings are said to form when there are too many rats living together in a cramped area. With the rise in the population of rats, there would also be an increase in the risk of disease breaking out. For instance, the Black Death, though not caused by the rats themselves, was spread to humans by the fleas that they carried. Considering that rat kings are regarded as bad omens, they were often killed immediately out of fear of disease. This seems to be the reason for the lack of live specimens. Moreover, no credible sighting of a live rat king has ever been confirmed. Still, there are preserved examples of rat kings that can be found in various natural museums. Between 35 and 50, according to some sources. One of the largest mummified rat kings is displayed in the Mauritium Museum in Altenburg, Germany. This particular rat king, which dates back to 1828, has 32 individual rats stuck together and is alleged to have been found in Buchheim, Germany. Not all people, however, are convinced that rat kings occur naturally. If a group of rats were to find themselves entangled, they would most likely gnaw their tails off in order to break free and save their lives. Even if they did not do so, they would all at least try to pull themselves apart. If they were to pull hard enough, they would be able to free themselves. Thus it has been argued that it is impossible for rat kings to occur in nature. Rather than being products of nature, it is believed that rat kings are hoaxes created by human hands. During the Middle Ages, certain merchants glued bat wings onto lizards in order to pass them off as dragons. Additionally, there are creatures known generally as Fiji mermaids, which were made by simply sewing the top half of a juvenile monkey onto the tail of a fish. Perhaps the Rat King was such an invention as well, though the purpose for its creation remains unclear. One evening in November 1896, two men were cycling along the coast just outside their hometown of St. Augustine, Florida. As they looked over the beach, they noticed a huge carcass. It was 23 feet long and 18 feet wide, 4 feet high and seemed to have multiple legs. The two men decided to tell Dr. Dewitt Webb, the founder of the St. Augustine Historical Society and Institute of Science, who came to examine the corpse. Webb photographed the body, noting it was a silvery pink colour and took samples. 
Webb recorded that the skin was axe-proof, being three and a half inches thick. He also estimated that the body weighed around six or seven tonnes. From the CoolInterestingStuff.com website, The Unexplained Mystery of the St. Augustine Monster. It needed four horses and a whole team of people from the local community to drag it the painstaking 40 feet up the beach in order to keep it away from the rolling waves. Webb was convinced it was not part of a whale and must have been some kind of unknown giant octopus. So he sent letters describing the carcass to many eminent scientists. One such expert was Professor Verrill at the National Museum, now called the Smithsonian, in Washington, D.C., Verrill stated that the creature was actually a squid. When Webb sent him more information, he changed his mind and said it was an octopus. Verrill suggested it had probably had tentacles of around 100 feet long. Verrill refused to see the dead creature in person or indeed to provide any funds or resources to help preserve the sea monster. Even so, the professor decided this new species should be named after himself calling it Octopus Giganteus Verol. Finally, he changed his mind after receiving tissue samples and said the body was probably just the head of a sperm whale. Webb was disappointed and preserved as many samples of the creature as he could. Eventually, the corpse was retaken by the sea. In the first days of December 1896, Dr George Grant, owner of a hotel at South Beach on Anastasia Island, wrote a short article describing the carcass, which was published in the Pennsylvania Grit of Williamsport on December 13. The article was accompanied by a picture of the sea monster depicting a tentacle creature with a tail. This was drawn by the draftsman of the newspaper based upon Grant's description and not an eyewitness. Grant's description was as follows. The head is as large as an ordinary flower barrel and has the shape of a sea lion head. The neck, if the creature may be said to have a neck, is the same as the diameter of the body. The mouth is on the underside of the head and is protected by two tentacle tubes about 8 inches in diameter and about 30 feet long. These tubes resemble an elephant's trunk and obviously were used to clutch in a sucker-like fashion any object within their reach. Another tube or tentacle of the same dimensions stands out on top of the head. Two others, one on each side, protrude from beyond the monster's neck and extend fully 15 feet along the body and beyond the tail. The tail, which is separated and jagged with cutting points for several feet, is flanked with two more tentacles of the same dimensions as the others and 30 feet long. The eyes are under the back of the mouth instead of over it. The specimen is so badly cut up by sharks and sawfish that only the stumps of the tentacles remain, but pieces of them were found strewn for some distance on the beach showing that the animal had a fierce battle with its foes before it was disabled and beached by the surf. Grant describes the animal as having seven tentacles and a tail. If the tail is interpreted as another tentacle, giving a total of eight, this would suggest an octopus as opposed to a decapod, such as the squid or cuttlefish. Furthermore, nothing in the description indicates the presence of the long feeding tentacles found in the squid, as the tentacles are said to be of the same dimensions. 
Between January 9 and January 15, a storm tide dragged the carcass out to sea, but it washed ashore again on the next tide on Crescent Beach, two miles to the south of its original location. Webb sent photographs of the mass, along with a description, to Joel Asif Allen of the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard. Allen apparently did not respond, but Webb's letter came to the attention of Professor Addison Emery Verrill of Yale, at that time the foremost authority on cephalopods in the country. At first, Verrill suggested the carcass might represent the remains of a giant squid. In the January 1897 issue of the American Journal of Science, he wrote... The proportions, given by Webb, indicate that this might have been a squid-like form and not an octopus. The breadth is evidently that of the softened and collapsed body and would represent an actual maximum diameter in life of at least seven feet and a probable weight of four to five tonnes for the body and head. These dimensions are decidedly larger than those of any of the well-authenticated Newfoundland species. It is perhaps a species of Architutus. Verrill soon changed his mind about the identity of the creature. In the January 3rd issue of the New York Herald, he wrote that the carcass was indeed that of a giant octopus. However, the paper did not state that Verrill was the author of the article. The article read, Its head was nearly destroyed, and only the stumps of two arms were visible. The body as it lies somewhat embedded in the sand is 18 feet long and about 7 feet wide, while it rises 3.5 feet above the sand. The weight of the body and head would have been at least 4 or 5 tonnes. If the eight arms held the proportions usually seen in the smaller species of octopus, they would have been at least 75 to 100 feet in length and about 18 inches in diameter at the base. On January 16, the Tatler, a local news sheet that reported on the visitors to St Augustine's hotels, ran a story about the stranded creature. It restated Verrill's original identification of the carcass as a giant squid. It read, The widespread interest in the very remarkable specimen of the giant squid, now lying on the beach a few miles below the city, is mainly due to its enormous size. It is believed to be the largest specimen ever found. Its great size and immense weight have thus far prevented it from being moved for a more careful examination. A dozen men with blocks and tackle not being able even to turn it over. Another effort will be made with more extensive apparatus by which it is hoped to drag it from the pit in which it now lies, placing it higher up on the beach so that a careful and thorough examination in the interest of science can be made and the exact species determined. Professor Verrill of Yale. True and Dale of the Smithsonian are in constant correspondence with Dr. DeWitt Webb, President of the St. Augustine Scientific, Literary and Historical Society, in regard to it. Several photographs have been taken of it, but owing to its position, these have not been satisfactory. Mrs. John L. Wilson believes it to belong to an extinct species. Its hide is three and a half inches thick and its head is covered by a hood that prevents examination. Apparently, it is a mass of cartilage and may have been dead in the water many days before being washed up on Anastasia Island. In the February issue of the American Journal of Science, Verrill even gave the animal a scientific name, Octopus giganteus, Verrill, 1897. He also added, It is possible that it may be related to the Ceratuthus, 
and in that case the two posterior stumps looking like arms may be the remains of the lateral fins, for they seem too far back for the arms unless pulled out of position. On the other hand, they seem to be too far forward for fins, so that they are probably arms twisted out of their true position. However, having examined samples of the mass sent to him by Webb, Verrill concluded that the creature cannot be an octopus, but is of cetacean nature. He suggested that the whole mass represents the upper part of the head of a sperm whale, detached from the skull and jaw. Webb decided that the carcass should be moved further inland so that it would not be lost to the sea forever. With the help of six horses and strong tackle, it was moved several miles nearer to St Augustine, to the terminus of a railroad, where it was protected from the tide and drifting sand. Its final resting place was South Beach, Anastasia Island, near to the hotel of Dr George Grant. The St Augustine carcass became somewhat of a tourist attraction and was visited by large numbers of people. It is unknown what happened to the carcass afterwards. The bandwidth for today's podcast was provided by TalkShoe at talkshoe.com. The show notes are kept at the Origins podcast website, origins.info. And just in case you don't know, Origins is spelled O-R-I-G-I-N-Z. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Paul Rexy. That's P-A-U-L-R-E-X-Y. And I'd like to thank these people for giving a donation to the podcast. Amy Dunn, Gareth Ainscoff, Sean Yarnell and Katie Jones. Thank you everyone, your help is greatly appreciated. creepypasta.com website in the walls we moved out of our last house a week ago and I'm glad we did it definitely was not safe there especially for a man like me who has a young family to take care of if I think I hadn't decided to get the hell out of there I would have failed my family and I would have probably lost them too eventually There was nothing obviously wrong with the house, actually. I suppose it was just a regular detached family home in a suburban neighbourhood. I think the first thing that struck me as off about it is the fact that all the houses on the street have been built sometime in the 1980s. The odd bit about that is the fact that nobody had actually lived there. In almost three and a half decades, nobody had ever lived in that house. But what could be wrong with that? It didn't ring any alarm bells, apart from the normal sort like, does the electricity still work? And is the boiler outdated? On top of that, we had to check if there were any pests or squatters. Nope, nothing there. The house was well built and hadn't let anything in. So it seemed, at least. Once we were settled in, we were actually very happy there. I think, although I find it hard to believe now, We wanted the house to be our home for a good long time. 
Bizarrely, it felt so perfect and right when actually there was something very deeply, inherently wrong about the place. The tension began one typical grey London morning. My wife was going to drop off our four-year-old boy at school, which usually takes about half an hour. It was the oddest thing. As soon as she shut the door behind her and I was alone, I became aware of a feeling that I hadn't felt before. You could describe it as a feeling of being watched. But I think it was something else. A feeling of tension and discomfort arising from, well, nothing. Nothing at all happened. No creaks, no bumps, no whispers. I had the heating on, it was December, and was listening to Classic FM on the radio. On first inspection, it appeared to be a comfortable, peaceful environment. Ideal for sitting down and getting on with my work. But it wasn't. I felt sort of agitated. I suppose it was just down to this being a new house that I had only slept in for a few nights and I got on with my work. Except I didn't. I couldn't settle down and concentrate. I found myself wandering around the house, walking slowly around every room. There were a few boxes of things that still needed to be unpacked and some rooms that were still quite bare. I refused to accept it but a tiny part of my subconscious expected that there was an intruder in the house. I was in the room farthest away from my study, so I could just about hear Bach's cello suite or whatever the heck it was playing upstairs. I stayed at the window waiting for my wife to turn up in her car. It was incredible how quickly the mood shifted as soon as my wife stepped into the house. As soon as I was no longer alone, the uncomfortable feeling lifted and I should actually feel the warmth of the central heating, and my tea with a tablespoon of honey in it actually tasted sweet. Even the rain clouds which had started to drizzle outside seemed friendlier. The next morning I did the school run, just as a little experiment. I was driving back when I got a call from my wife. I don't think she wanted anything in particular apart from some company. Her tone was very casual, It almost sounded forced, and she was only asking when I would be back, but in a prolonged way, as if she wanted to keep the call as long as possible. I had some idea why she was calling. She was getting the feeling too. She probably felt it more because women are more tuned to these subtleties in an environment. She didn't mention anything when I returned regarding the feeling, but through her smile I could see that she was a tiny bit spooked. To be honest, it was really nothing, just a feeling that people get sometimes. The only odd things about it were that it happened when we were alone, and that it happened to both of us. Well, still, some places are just like that. A house that hasn't been lived in for decades might take time to warm to its new owners, I guess. The next day, while my wife was out getting the groceries, I made a little discovery the strange feeling grew more intense in certain parts of the house. In the upstairs bedroom, it was particularly strong, and there was a corridor that connected the dining room and living room where it was also quite noticeable. The thing about these places is that they were the only parts of the house with mirrors in them. With time, I came to hate those parts of the house and those mirrors. Nothing new happened for about a week, I just avoided being in the house by myself and I noticed my wife did the same. 
although we never discussed the fact that we felt uncomfortable being alone. It was a new house. We didn't want to spoil our first days there with negativity. But a certain negativity hung about the place nevertheless. It was not obvious, it was not intense, but it was always there. It felt somewhat hostile, as if we were sharing the home with something, something that didn't like us being around. I read up online when my wife wasn't looking that some places just have what they call negative energy. Apparently this is a result of many things such as poor lighting, bad feng shui and bad things that have happened in the past in the place. Ironically, we installed brand new high power light bulbs. My wife had a whole book on keeping good feng shui and as for the whole bad things happening in the past thing, nobody had ever lived in the house before. I mean, how could anything bad have happened here if nobody had lived here before? At least our little boy didn't seem affected. He was just playing happily as ever with his toys. A work overload had preoccupied me and his mother lately, so we didn't spend as much time with him as usual. He didn't seem to mind. He even managed to invent an imaginary friend to play with. There was this one night, however, when I came home from work late to find my son in bed and my wife waiting for me in the living room. As soon as I came through the front door, I was greeted with a thick, heavy presence. It gave me a bad feeling immediately. I knew at once that something was not right. And yet everything seemed fine. We ate dinner in front of the television, washed up and then get ready for bed. We both joined our son upstairs to sleep, and soon enough we had both dozed off. Except I was suddenly disturbed from my sleep. It was nothing unnatural. In fact, it was the very call of nature that woke me up. I needed to use the loo. I got up and put on my slippers and nightgown. It was absolutely freezing being a winter's night. But when I stepped into the bathroom, I was shocked by how cold it was. It was not safe how chilly it was in there. I looked at myself in the mirror for a bit, then sat on the toilet seat to do my business. The mirror was giving me a bad feeling. I kept imagining that I could see something moving around in the mirror, yet there was nobody else in the room but me, not even a fly or a bug. It happened at least three times. Then I got up and washed my hands and just stared into the mirror for a while, just to make sure. It eventually made me uneasy. So I hurried back to bed and actually found myself hiding my face with the duvet. I think I saw something moving in the mirror again the next night. And the next. I think I even saw a face in the downstairs hallway mirror as I walked past. For a split second. Of course, I knew it was only my imagination. Definitely just a side effect of all the negative energy in the place. It was getting more irritating than frightening. So I decided to ring up one of those priests those spiritual sorts who know how to brighten up places with negative energy in them. She turned up while our son was at school, a frail old Japanese woman who must have been 80 years old at least. Her son dropped her off since she was very weak and unable to walk the distance. Anyway, she came in smiling faintly and telling us in broken English that she would just take a walk around the house to get used to it. I and my wife sat quietly in the living room Personally, I don't think she was all too happy about the house being checked out by what she referred to as an exorcist. I showed her the web pages about clearing negative energy 
and she agreed with a sigh. After all, it was good Feng Shui to have your house cleared. The spiritual woman came downstairs after about ten minutes. In spite of how bony and old she was, she made the place feel very secure and comfortable. I almost wanted her to stay with us, so that we could be assured that we would have no negative energy. But something happened that made us wonder if it really was negative energies making our house the way it was. Anyway, she came into the living room and told us that she had burnt incense in some of the rooms and that she was going to go over the rooms again just to clear out any remaining negativity. But then she suddenly went stiff and her quivering smile became a screwed up scowl and her watery eyes hardened. We thought she was having a stroke and reached for the telephone to call an ambulance. Turns out she was fine. She told us not to touch anything or move. We listened and watched, dumbfounded, as she rushed to the wall with impressive speed and pressed her ear against it. She whispered some words which we couldn't hear, and she seemed to be receiving a reply as her expression changed and contorted. Whatever she was hearing can't have been good because she gave a shriek and sprang away from the wall. The room darkened noticeably, like when a cloud covers the sun. You no live in this house. The old woman grabbed my wife by the shoulders and shook her firmly as she said this. Why not, I asked, as my wife was too taken aback to reply. Man in the walls, she shrieked. There is this man live in the walls. Bad man, man in the walls. The old woman hurried through the hallway and without putting her shoes on, stepped outside the house and urged us to come out with her. She called her son to pick her up on a little Nokia phone and refused to step back inside, even though she needed to sit down because of her frailty. I brought a chair outside for her, and brought her shoes out too. We waited with her outside, and I can swear that when I went inside to fetch the chair, I was not the only one in that house. I cursed the old woman for making me so nervous. I was hearing whispers all over the house now. Her son picked her up, and when he saw her in a nervous state, he gave me and my wife an unfriendly look before driving away. That had gone badly. We would have got mad at each other had it not been for what the old woman had said. Man in the walls. It was chilling to hear that, and the look of terror on the old woman's face convinced us that she was serious. But being modern cosmopolitans, we just agreed after some conversation that she was doing that to frighten us, or that she was just old and batty. We didn't want to believe her bullshit. But the phrase stuck with me, man in the walls. I even admit I put my ear to the wall to see if I would hear anything. Nothing. We were more uneasy now than we had been before the spiritual had come. The tension gathered all day until at bedtime, and the house felt unnaturally dark. As I was slipping into bed, relieved that the day was over, a cry from my wife got me out of bed. She rushed into the bedroom with a look of utter horror on her face. Man in the mirror, she screamed. Man, man in the mirror. I had enough sense to realise that she was not talking about the Michael Jackson hit. She was genuinely terrified. Where? Bathroom. I saw it, I tell you. I believe you, I believe you. I had to believe her. I stormed into the bathroom and looked into the mirror. It was just a normal reflection. There was nothing there. I stood there for a while. Then I began to cry. 
What's wrong with this bloody place? I cried. Man in the wall, tell me, is there a man in the wall? No, no, there isn't, my wife comforted me. It was my imagination, I'll bet you. It's just that darned old woman coming in here and telling us all this mumbo-jumbo about men in the walls. It's nothing, nothing at all. Then what the hell have I been seeing? This place, it feels wrong, just wrong. Oh, nothing, don't worry, there's nothing here, there can't be. Let's just get some sleep, that's what you need, sleep. I was too tired to carry on with this. I forced myself to believe that there was nothing funny going on. I didn't convince myself. We went to bed and I was about to turn out the light when my wife told me something that made me shudder. You know, Daniel, our son, has been saying some weird things lately, she said. Like what? Well, it might be just a coincidence, but what the old woman said about a man in the walls... It seems to fit with something that Daniel has been talking about. Oh, really? Do you know anything about his imaginary friend? I chuckled. Well, I know that Daniel spends an awful lot of time with it. What does it he call it again? Wallman. Oh, yeah. Oh. I just realised then the creepy connection. Wallman? Daniel's been saying things about his friend. He told me the other day that he's got a round face with black eyes and a big smile and he's really thin so that he can fit in the wall. I found it cute at the time, but now... I don't know. I just got the biggest chill I had in a long time. Well, there's more. We were in the park, just me and him. Nobody else was there. I asked him if he wanted to invite Wallman for a picnic... He said he couldn't. He told me that Wallman is only in our house and never leaves. That one made me laugh a bit when he told it to me. But then he gave me this serious, worried look and said, Don't laugh, Mummy. Wallman doesn't like you and Daddy. He hates you. He says he only likes me. I shuddered and took a deep breath. The air suddenly felt colder and more hostile. You know, I said to my wife after a period of silence... I really do think we should move out. I don't know if it's just a bad feeling I get about this place, or if maybe that old Japanese woman was right. This stuff is creeping the hell out of me. I don't think I can sleep now. I don't feel safe. Nevertheless, we both managed to sleep after a bit more conversation on where we could move to. I had dreams. They were mostly just plain, random dreams. But one thing stuck out as different. I dreamt I came home to find the house empty. I called to see if anyone was home and turned on a few lights. I noticed very vividly that there was somebody standing in the living room. It was a man's figure, very lean and about the height of a child. He was facing away from me. I could tell, but the light wouldn't turn on in that room, so I couldn't see any more. I think he was naked. In my dream, I called out, Daniel? but I felt certain that this was not my son. I was scared of this figure in the living room. The dream ended there and I woke up. I blamed all the weird events. They were affecting my sleep. I managed to get some more shut-eye after that. No dreams this time. It was a Saturday next morning, so we had a bit of a lie-in. I'm getting the kettle on. How many sugars would you like? I asked my wife before going downstairs to the kitchen to make some tea. But as I waited for the kettle to boil, a voice caught my attention. 
It was Daniel. He was raising his voice. I found him looking up at the mirror in the downstairs corridor in a heated argument with somebody. No, if you don't say sorry, I won't be your friend anymore, he cried. Hello, Dan? You all right there, son? I called to him. He ignored me outright. No, 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 he shrieked at whoever he was speaking to, and I saw tears on his cheeks. I don't want to. You're not nice anymore. Go away, go away, he began to screech. I don't want to go with you. I rushed along and lift him up, carrying him away from that mirror. His mother came downstairs, roused by the shouting. What's wrong, dear, she asked. Wallman, Wallman wants me to live with him, in the wall. He wants to take me in the wall, but I told him I don't want to. Oh, God, I muttered, handing him to my wife, my voice shaking. I can't put up with this bullshit any longer. Wallman, where the heck are you? Come out, you bastard. I had never spoken in front of my son like that before, but he didn't seem unsettled. He seemed glad that I was angry at his imaginary friend. My wife took him upstairs while I raged on for a bit. Right, I said when my wife came back downstairs. We've got to get rid of these goddamn mirrors. They're creeping the shit right out of me. It's okay. It's fine. No, it's not fine. It can't be fine. It's like they're portals or something. Like there's evil coming straight out of them or some crazy shit like that. Okay, okay, we need to stay calm. She assured me, let's just get some breakfast sorted and we'll see how things go. We had breakfast in silence and after a while it seemed okay. And then something happened that was amazing. Nothing. Nothing at all. There wasn't even a weird feeling of anxiety anymore. It felt like a normal home should. Weirder still, the next day was fine too, and nothing dodgy took place overnight. We kept the mirrors. I hadn't been entirely serious about throwing them out. I had just been stressed out. Then a whole week went by, and it was Sunday again, without a single weird thing happening. Our house was beginning at last to feel like a home. We had less work, so we spent more time with Daniel, and he seemed to forget about his imaginary friend, which was actually a relief to us. That imaginary friend had seemed like something else. It seemed wrong to be coming from the imagination of a four-year-old. We thought everything was going to be fine, but then something made us think twice. Yellow mould had started to grow in circular patches around the house. The patches were about the size of footballs, and they gave off a rotten smell. We decided to leave it be for a while, but the patches turned up suddenly in more places, and they were too ugly and stinky to stay. We called in a man to investigate and sort out the mould problem, and while he worked, the three of us paid a visit to my parents-in-law. We got a call from the man dealing with the mould at about eight o'clock in the evening. He sounded troubled and told us to come home quickly, We were very agitated throughout the car journey and when we saw policemen standing around our home my wife looked as though she would cry. A tall fat policeman stopped us in our tracks as we made our way towards the front door. Stop right there sir, he said. I highly doubt that you and especially your wife will want to see what's been found in your home. You ain't suspected, don't be afraid but I tell you mate, it's ghastly. He took off his hat and breathed out with disgust. Mummy, Daddy, what's happening? Daniel kept asking, but we just led him back to the car. I went back to the policeman and the inspector came and told me I could come in. 
I went in to find where the patches of mould had been. There were holes in the wall. Men in uniform and masks were carrying small objects in plastic bags out of the house. The mould specialist was sitting down with a cup of coffee on the sofa, his head in one of his hands. He seemed deeply troubled. I looked at him for a while and thought it might be better not to ask him what had happened. But I didn't need to. You ain't seen what you've had in your walls yet? He asked me, his eyes bloodshot. I ain't ever done a job like this one. Bloody shocking. What was in my walls? I asked, my voice shaking. Tell me, please. I I can't bear it any more. Can't tell you myself, mate. Bloody shocking. Suddenly the world around me became a blur and I collapsed on the ground. I came to at my parents' house in law again. Had that all been a dream? No, it was two in the morning. My son and wife were upstairs, they told me. An inspector was waiting to speak to me. What happened, inspector? What was there in my house? I asked as patiently as I could. Now, don't take this the wrong way, sir. We're not accusing you of anything. The things we found date back at least a decade, judging by the state they're in. What did you find? Then I was told, once I had promised to remain calm, that behind each of the sixteen patches of mould, the bones of a small child had been found curled up inside the walls. The children were all between the ages of two and five, and were recognised as children that had gone missing in the area over the past thirty years or so. Now hearing that shook me as much as it would shake anybody in my position. There was something else in the walls of that house, something evil, and had things happened differently, it might have taken my son into the wall like all those other children. I and my wife still haven't gotten over our experiences in that house, although our son seems to be indifferent to the whole thing. He never got told about the children in the walls, and hopefully he'll never ask, so we won't have to tell him. He never mentions his imaginary friend Wallman, and he seems happy enough in our new home, as do all of us. I don't want to tempt fate or anything, but our new place seems just right. Nothing weird going on there. But one thing bugs me, and I don't think it'll ever stop bugging me as long as I live. I still don't know what the heck that was in our house. I refer to it as Wallman because the name makes it seem less frightening. But I can't get over the fact that I have actually had contact with a paranormal entity. I'm guessing it's still there in that building. Fat chance anybody wants to buy that house now, after the discovery made the local headlines. There's one more thing. A few days after he made his dreadful discovery, the mould specialist arranged to meet me at my workplace. He seemed deeply disturbed and told me that he had something dead strange to show me. It was a picture he had taken on his mobile phone on the day he had been at our house. It was a picture of the mirror in the corridor. Although the quality was a little grainy, a face could be seen very clearly in the mirror. It just popped up at the bottom corner of the mirror. A white face with a wide, thin-lipped mouth and large black eyes. It had very clean, neat teeth. It didn't appear to have a nose or any hair, but perhaps it was just because of the quality of the image. It was grinning broadly and its eyes were wide open. The picture was taken from an angle so that the photographer could not be seen, only the face and the rest of the room. But what scared me the most about the face was the fact that it was there. It was actually there, 
real photographic evidence of something paranormal that had been in our home all that time. Saw the bastard in the mirror, and I didn't know what the bloody heck it was, so I snapped a shot and ran out of the bloody house, the man explained to me. He seemed shaken. Now, I'm not sure why he showed that to me. Perhaps he was frightened and just wanted to get it off his chest. Perhaps it was just fascinating or incredible to him. I don't care really, because now that I've seen that photographic evidence, I won't stop thinking about it. I never truly, actually believed in the paranormal until then. But now, I'm open-minded. I say my prayers before going to bed every night. I've started being superstitious and avoiding creepy places and walking under ladders and everything. I only have one mirror in my house now, in the bathroom, and I avoid it like the plague. Not to mention that I practice methods designed to keep my home free of negative energies. My wife's like that. After all, it is good feng shui. And sometimes, only sometimes, when I'm alone at home and it is quiet, I press my ear to the wall and listen carefully. Then I look into my mirror for a while, just to make sure there isn't anything else in there. Perhaps you should give it a go too. After all, some houses are strange, and some houses have been there a very long time. With enough time, I think things come into existence in empty places that shouldn't be allowed to exist. You may find that those walls that protect you from the elements every day are in fact home to something that you might need protection from. And as for mirrors, I guess they are like doors into the walls. They show you not only what's behind you, but what's behind them. Trust me, if you see any strange faces in the mirror, there's a possibility there could be something in your walls. Afraid? My advice, just brush your teeth quickly. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.